In an official report dated September 20th, 1866, Captain Hiram Storrs Washburn would write about the difficulty of the command he had been entrusted with the summer of the previous year. The report details how promised clothing for his men had not arrived, that shelter was scarce, sickness was everywhere, and the weather had been harsh. More than a few men had deserted after orders came to march from Tubac to central Arizona. He had spent at least $750 out of his own pocket to recruit his unit, and had initially gone months without pay, which is better than his men who still had received nothing. Washburn wrote, quote, I have long been accustomed to hard and active labor into positions of some responsibility, but never have I passed a year and four months of such unremitting toil and care as the past. End quote. Despite all of this, sprinkled throughout the report are engagement after engagement with the enemy, with nearly universal victories. He also wrote, quote, Had the actual needed supplies been furnished, there is no doubt but that the record of this company would have been such as its officers could look back upon with pride. End quote. As it was, his men, part of an irregular force tasked with taking the fight to the Apache, still managed to eke out their own special place in Arizona history. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 53, The Arizona Volunteers. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we were finally able to bring the Civil War era to a close, with the California Volunteers being released from service and Carlton being sent off to a kind of, sort of, promotion. But before we say goodbye to the mid-1860s forever, there is one more thread we have to follow through to and past the end of the Civil War. And that thread is the movements and actions of our current rebel Apache leader, Cochise. We were last following this thread back in episode 46, where we discussed how Cochise's movements are incredibly hard to pin down in 1863 and 1864, as he was constantly moving between Mexico and Arizona, and we only have indirect evidence to tie him to the many, many, many raids happening at the time. We also saw how the constant warfare was taking its toll on the Chiricahua, and supplies and other resources were dwindling. However, 1865 is when Cochise suddenly burst onto the radar again in a big way. Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney says, quote, The year 1865 was destined to be Cochise's most active since the first year of his outbreak. End quote. That statement is borne out in the first month of the year when raiding kicked off again in quite the huge way. A large active body of Apache were in the area of the San Pedro River and attacked a male vedette service between Fort Bowie and Tubac with another raid on a wagon following shortly thereafter. On February 17, 1865, another group of roughly 70 to 80 Chiricahua struck near the mines in the Santa Rita Mountains ambushing a small party of three, which resulted in the capture of a young Mexican boy and the death of locals William Wrightson and Gilbert W. Hopkins. 
Subsequently, Mount Wrightson and Mount Hopkins, the two highest peaks in the Santa Ritas, are named after these victims. As Sweeney notes, the style of attack, the number of Apache involved, and the plunder that was found later all leads to the conclusion that Cochise was involved in these activities. However, the great chief next turned south, striking back into Mexico, probably out of revenge for an attack by Mexicans that had killed some relatives of his at the end of 1864. In April, warriors under his command struck a wagon train between Sonora and Chihuahua with extremely deadly results. And with that bit of personal business wrapped up, Cochise then headed north again into Arizona. At the same time that the Apache attacks were starting to ramp up, leaders in Arizona were deciding what to do about it. You might remember from last week that in January 1865, Arizona was separated from Carleton and the military department of New Mexico and given to the Department of the Pacific. This department was overseen by Major General Irvin McDowell, the namesake for the newly established Fort McDowell, which sat near where the Verde River met the Salt River on the eastern edge of today's Scottsdale. In February, McDowell had a meeting in San Francisco with Arizona Governor John Noble Goodwin and Brigadier General John Sanford Mason to discuss the Apache situation. As was made plenty clear in his opening speech to the territorial legislature, Goodwin was no fan of the Apache and always wanted more money, troops, and guns to either drive them to a reservation or just get rid of them permanently. Turns out that Shocker, the two military men were in agreement with this and that the Apache had to be dealt with to really let Arizona achieve its grand and glorious destiny. So Mason was tapped to be the commander of the new District of Arizona, with this meeting at the forefront of his mind. When Mason arrived in Arizona in May 1865, he decided to do a little tour of his new command just to get the lay of the land and what exactly he had gotten himself into. From his point of view, the situation was not pretty. He had insufficient troops for what he had been tasked with, and the men he did have were lacking clothing, supplies, horses, and just about everything you needed to launch a campaign with. Mason also wasn't too enamored with the territory itself, famously calling Tubac a, quote, worthless town, and coming to the conclusion that the Amerindians really did have control of everything. He also formulated his own vision for an Indian policy, which involved shepherding the Apache onto reservations, which would be supplied and policed by the military, just to make sure that once the natives were sent there, they didn't cause any more problems. As for those who wouldn't go voluntarily? Well, would you believe me if I told you that he advocated sending expeditions into hostile territory to force them to? Here we also find Mason's attitude towards Cochise, whom he called, quote, the very worst Indian on the continent, end quote. Meanwhile, the great chief continued to play the game he had perfected over the past several years, namely moving between Mexico and the mountains of southern Arizona, refusing to even think about signing a peace treaty because no one could catch or pin him down. In late June, Mason heard that Cochise might be camped near Mount Graham, and eagerly dispatched a subordinate to take men and hunt him down. Unfortunately, this group just wound up wandering around and finding rancherias that were suspected to have belonged to Cochise and the hundreds of his followers, 
but had been abandoned shortly beforehand. And the other downside was, sensing a buildup of American troops in his stomping grounds, Cochise and his followers just went down to Mexico again, but continued to raid up into Arizona whenever the mood struck them. In July, he would swing through the territory again, ambushing small groups east of Tucson and then a handful of soldiers near Wilcox, which is said to have netted him a good deal in gold, plus wagons and other supplies. During these raids, Mason had ordered a scouting party to go into the Huachuca Mountains and San Pedro River Valley to, you know, stop them. This group eventually followed the trail of the Apache south of the border to the abandoned Presidio at Terrenate. Hey, remember the Presidios? Ooh, that takes me back. While here, two soldiers went out hunting, but when they didn't return, two others went to find them. The original two eventually straggled back into camp, saying they had been fired upon by at least ten Apache, but didn't know anything about the two that had been sent out to find them. Immediately, a force of fifteen was organized to go out and locate this other missing pair, but unfortunately they walked into a canyon, which at this time and place is just a sure sign that you're about to get ambushed. Sure enough, a force of some 100 to 150 Apache waiting up in the hills began firing down on the soldiers, who all attempted to retreat. Though they made quite the commotion, the Apache stayed well out of rifle range, which probably prevented a massacre on both sides. A sudden heavy rainstorm did the rest to allow the two parties to separate without a heated battle. Throughout this retreat, the Americans reported that they had seen the leader of these Apache, believed to be none other than Cochise, commanding his men with hand motions from on top of a nearby ridge. The men also reported that they heard the Apache that night whooping and singing as if they had won a great victory. And then the next day, the two missing men were finally located. Their naked bodies, which had been pierced by Apache lances, were found nearby. One had the fortune to die quickly. The second had apparently put up a fight. For their trouble, the Apache had smashed in his skull. As you might have figured out by now, large-scale battles aren't quite the Apache's thing. So it shouldn't surprise you that Cochise didn't stick around after this last skirmish, but once again headed further into Mexico. Here we find him sending out like the five millionth round of peace feelers to Fronteras, promising that he would come in peacefully with some 400 of his followers. It also won't surprise you to learn that this is not destined to go anywhere, but for slightly different reasons than more than a century of mutual distrust and loathing. Nope, this round is destined to failure because, as we discussed last week, Mexicans weren't really in charge of Mexico at the moment. The French invasion by now had caused Governor Pesquera to flee Sonora and to head into Arizona. And the French weren't that interested in dealing with the Apaches, or really Sonora in general, which they characterize as just one large open playground for hostile natives. With no official power willing to help, the Mexican citizens in Sonora decided to turn to the only people that could, the Americans. Specifically, they turned to the man we started today's episode with, Captain Hiram Storrs Washburn, who was then in southern Arizona recruiting for the Arizona Volunteers. Now, stay with me because this is going to be a really long digression. 
The Arizona Volunteers are the realization of what we talked about just a couple weeks ago in episode 51. Remember that the territorial legislature petitioned the federal government for $250,000 to fight the Apache. This money was to be used to equip a force of quote-unquote Arizona Rangers with Springfield rifles, which could then be set loose on the enemy. I honestly can't find if that money was ever actually approved, though I highly doubt it. But what we do know for sure is that in the end of 1864, Governor Goodwin was given the approval to establish five companies of Arizona Volunteers. There was a delay actually forming these companies, but by the fall of 1865, more than 350 men were enlisted to fight. The crucial detail about these companies, however, is that, in the words of historian Thomas Sheridan, quote, they were not the Anglo-pioneers of Western myth. On the contrary, the overwhelming majority were Mexicans, many of them from Sonora, or Odom and Peeposh from the Gila River villages. They had grown up fighting Yavapai and Apaches, as had their fathers and grandfathers, end quote. Now, they did fight under 11 Anglo-American officers. Two such men were even former California volunteers. But the actual fighting men of companies A, E, and F were by and large Mexican. Company B was composed of Maricopa, or Peeposh natives, while Company C was comprised of Pima, or Acamel Odom. And I want to talk about Company C for a moment, mainly to highlight who served as their first lieutenant, the Pima chief Antonio Azul. I'll be honest up front here, I don't know nearly enough about Antonio Azul. As far as I can tell, a biography of him, even a not very detailed one, just isn't easily accessible. What I'm about to go on is the random times he is name-dropped across my various sources and newspaper articles both contemporary and modern. So I'm reserving the right to extend my comments about him as more information trickles in from my research. There's actually a good chance I've mentioned him before, back in episode 27, when I may have possibly confused him with his father, who I'd said had met with William H. Emery during the last years of the surveying work for the southern border. So consider this something of a much belated correction. Maybe, possibly, it's actually really hard to tell. The best estimate I can find is that Antonio Azul was probably born in either 1818 or 1819. Azul was the hereditary chief of the Acamel Odom, his father having fought alongside the Spanish, and later the Mexicans, when they were still in charge. Indeed, his father was the chief that Captain Comodoran of the Tucson Presidio persuaded to stay loyal to Mexico during the Papago War in the 1840s. Azul continued in this policy, though obviously switching out the Spanish and Mexicans for the Americans in the never-ending quest to keep the Apache in line. Like most of his tribe, Azul officially became a U.S. citizen in 1856 following the Gadsden Purchase. He was also present for that 1857 battle I mentioned back in episode 31 that featured the Quechins and the Mojaves being routed by the Allied Odom and Maricopa. You might also have noticed that during the early Civil War years, everyone wanted to take control of the Pima wheat fields along the Gila River, which was overseen by Azul and his people. 
In 1864, Azul was part of a delegation that was sent to Washington, D.C. The trip was basically a chance for the local Indian agent to awe Azul and the Mojave chief with the American capital and to inspire more loyalty. Because of the firm alliance between the Odom and the Americans, remember that practically every single white person who passed through Arizona heaped praise on them while condemning the Apache, it should be no wonder that Azul and the Pima enlisted to be Arizona volunteers. We'll get more fully into the volunteers in just a second, but I want to wrap up the life of Azul, who was actually a fairly influential figure if you read in between the lines. In the 1870s, white settlers began moving into Odom land and farming along the Gila. The resulting irrigation meant less water in the river itself, and consequently less for the Pima to use. When Azul brought this issue up, the U.S. government decided to handle the issue in the same way that they were used to doing back then. That is to solve the problem by deciding that the Odom should be relocated to Oklahoma to be out of the settlers' way. After heading east to check out this proposed reservation for himself, Azul decided he did not like the land there and that his people simply would not be going. And believe it or not, the chief was able to ensure that his tribe would not have to leave Arizona, which is a little mind-blowing considering how often tribes were forced from their land. Honestly, I really wish I had a good account of that story because that alone marks Azul as an important player in Arizona history. The chief was very respected among Arizona's white population, both for his adoption of quote-unquote civilized society, read Christianity and white education, and for his zeal of battling the Apache. A 1901 article in the Florence Tribune praised him as the grand old man of the Pimas, and related, quote, Antonio, from all accounts, was an able leader of his warriors, and often headed them in battle against their inveterate foes, the Apache, end quote. The same article praised him for inviting missionaries to the Pima lands, and proudly said that he was a constant parishioner at the local Presbyterian church, even if he spoke little English and had to have the services translated. He was also praised for his focus on education and being industrious with both a store and ranching operation. He is, in fact, the article says, a man of very respectable means. And I just want to note here that this article is more than a little patronizing, seeing as it praises Azul solely for his Anglo-American tendencies, for example, only complimenting him on his, quote, penetrative intellect, because he saw that the white people he was dealing with, quote, were the products of a civilization and came of a race superior to his own, end quote. Seriously, if anyone has an Odom source out there on his life and times, I would love to read it. Antonio Azul would pass away on October 20th, 1910. He's just a footnote in our story, but I would love to see him mentioned more in state histories. With that wholly inadequate biography of a prominent leader done with, let's go back to where we introduced him, as a member of the Arizona Volunteers. As was said earlier, the whole idea of recruiting Mexicans and Pima and Maricopa was that they knew the land and how to fight the enemy, 
they often fought with bows, arrows, and war clubs, as well as guns. The tragedy is they were never fully equipped to do the job properly. Many showed up to enlist with no possessions except what meager clothing was on their backs, and then they weren't provided much more to do the job. Sheridan, among others, recounts how they were not given warm clothing or shoes, they had to sleep in hovels, and march for days on half-rations of jerky and panole. Through their marches across Arizona, they found little shelter at forts and were exposed to all the elements the territory could throw at them. In his report, Washburn wrote that on January 31st, they had to sally forth against the Apache, except they didn't actually have shoes and had to resort to using buckskin and moccasins. At another time, after ferreting at least 60 Apache out of a cave, he related that the enemy was much better provisioned than his own men. And, according to McClintock, that was all after Washburn's company out of Fort Mason at Tubac was particularly hit with fevers, and that at one time, fewer than nine men could make it to roll call. And this is just one company, but it is indicative of conditions across all the volunteers. And yet, they were surprisingly effective. According to early state historian Thomas Farish, the five companies would dive deep into Apache country, including sweeping through the Tonto Valley, the area around Globe, and even as far north as Tonto Natural Bridge north of Payson. Sheridan says that in their year of service, they managed to kill somewhere between 150 and 175 Apache, while only losing 10 men. The Third Territorial Legislature passed a resolution memorializing their service, saying the volunteers, quote, have inflicted greater punishment upon the Apache than all other troops in the territory, besides oftentimes pursuing him barefoot and upon half-rations, to his fastnesses, cheerfully enduring hardships encountered on mountain and desert, end quote. It's a nice little tip of the hat, and I hope the volunteers appreciated it because that's all they were getting. Because in the end, no one was ever paid for their service. They had been promised a $100 bounty at the time of their enlistment, but the territory was so strapped for cash that when the check came due, nothing could be done. On August 3, 1866, the men under Washburn were sick of it all and went on strike. And he couldn't blame them. Within a month and a half, only five men remained under his command, and these would be discharged just a few months later. McClintock relates that how, at the time he was writing in the early 1900s, some of these volunteers, quote, a few nearing 100 years of age, end quote, were still petitioning for pensions for their service. But these, he said, were rejected because their action had not been against Confederates, and you probably saw this coming, because they were Indians. It's not like territorial officials were oblivious to any of this. They, in fact, loved these companies, and Territorial Secretary Richard C. McCormick wrote the U.S. Secretary of War in June 1866, asking not only that these companies be retained, but that a proper regiment be formed. However, the response he got was that there was no provision in law for such a regiment. Officials did make a push to amend the law to allow them to keep the native companies at least, but it appears this never made it to the floor of Congress. 
Washburn, in particular, was a little infuriated, saying, quote, One thing at least has been proven, that the native troops are far superior to any others for field service in this territory, and until this shall be taken as the base of operations, no immediate good results can occur. Government may continue to spend its millions upon any other basis, and Apache raids will still continue, while 300 native troops, well-officered, at an expense of less than $800 to the man per year, will in less than two years rid the territory of its greatest bane and obstacle in the way of progress. End quote. In his volume, Sheridan is of a similar mind, expressing the opinion that if the enlistments had been extended, the, quote, centuries-old alliance of Hispanic, Odom, and Peeposh frontiersmen might have conquered the Apacheria for the Anglo newcomers, end quote. Okay, so after that very long digression, we are back in the summer of 1865, and Cochise is filling out settling at Fronteras, at least until the heat dies down back in Arizona. Well, Washburn learns of this, and, like most Americans, decides that they need to get to Cochise at once and stamp out this Apache menace pronto. He starts suggesting plans to his superiors to do just that. If Cochise was setting up shop at Fronteras, he suggested, why don't we make a little plan with the Mexicans down there to get the Apache good and drunk on Mescal and then move in for the kill? But, as always, the fact that his foe was south of an international border made it possible only for Washburn to sit and fume. The main problem was that he just didn't have the military might to get away with slightly violating the land of a sovereign nation. As we discussed, his men were lacking money, clothing, guns, and every other type of supplies. Washburn would report that his men were getting sick from, quote, eating crude fruit and sleeping on the wet ground without blankets, end quote. Cochise biographer Sweeney suggests that if Washburn's men had even just the level of supplies they would have when they were set loose against the Tonto Apache in central Arizona the following year, they may have been able to take on Cochise and his followers. However, as it was, Cochise, kind of like that cat who just paces the fence to make the leashed dog go crazy, sauntered away towards Hanos. By October, he had returned to the Chiricahua Mountains, and Washburn was almost salivating at the prospect of capturing him. He appears to have wanted the reward money, the glory of such a dramatic success, and the trip to Washington that would surely go along with such a feat. However, he was hampered again by a lack of supplies, writing that Cochise's whereabouts were, quote, well known, and my men can take him if they can get arms, end quote. Washburn would never get his chance, because Cochise did something completely unexpected. He asked for peace. In late October, the Chiricahua Apache were at the gates of Fort Bowie, asking for a cessation of hostilities, possibly just to be able to winter in their traditional homeland of the Chiricahua Mountains. The fort's commander, Major James Gorman, was puzzled by this sudden move, and the appearance of hundreds of Apaches up in the hills with actual white flags. Now, Gorman was no friend of the natives, so he told them that he had no authority to make such a treaty and that they should come back in 12 days after he had gotten orders from his superiors. However, 
He also decided to be very sneaky and gathered a group of some 30-plus men to, uh, cut wood. That's right, just leaving the fort to go out and cut some wood. A civilian later reported that when Gorman rolled out of Fort Bowie, he had with him two large wagons concealing a number of soldiers so as not to arouse suspicions. Several days after heading out on this uh, lumberjacking expedition, Gorman's men told him of a local native rancheria nearby. The major was actually able to sneak most of his men past an Apache lookout, but unfortunately they were discovered a bit too soon and most of the rancheria was abandoned by the time they got there. However, seven Apache were killed and one soldier wounded in this engagement. Though this did nothing to stop him from wintering in the Chiricahuas, Gorman's military action did dash any hope for a peaceful settlement with Cochise. Not that I put too much faith in Cochise's desire for peace. His track record with both Mexicans and Americans showed that he was willing to dangle peace out as a carrot until conditions changed enough that he could get out his big old stick again. But this incident also proved that the Americans were just as two-faced when it came to negotiations, as Gorman had bought himself some time just so he could go out and try to smash Cochise. Oops, I mean so he could go out and cut some wood. Further winter expeditions into the Chiricahua, Huachuca, and Dragoon Mountains showed the army was always one step behind the Apache, with them coming upon rancherias and other encampments that had been abandoned just days beforehand. And would it surprise you at all if I said that Cochise managed to slip away once again down into Mexico? But while this winter campaign did nothing but further the stalemate, it didn't stop General McDowell up in San Francisco from proclaiming proudly that the army was successful in, quote, driving Cochise's band into Sonora, end quote. I guess we can leave off this week with McDowell patting himself on the back for a job sort of done. Though, and you guessed it, Cochise was far from finished with his fight. But join me next week as we start to look at post-Civil War Arizona, which, unsurprisingly, contains a lot more conflict with the natives. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.